With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo. With me today is special guest and Dan Lyons replacement, Andy Pregler. Hello. I'm glad to be back on the show in the midst of the NBA playoffs. And as the newly minted Nets fan, I can take Dan's place on giving you crap and telling you that Trey Young looks a lot like uh, young Reggie Miller. I want to stab Trey Young. <laughs> <laughs> he is uh, my uh, my boss at work said that gave, gave me the Reggie Miller comparison and the more I think about it the more it's kind of perfect because Trey does have that uh ability to make every fan base dislike him just yes. for being himself on the court there's no off-court antics that need to amplify your hatred of him yeah I like see I like Trey as a player and I liked him probably more than most people do and then he did that and like fancied himself Reggie Miller and and now I'm just like I mean, admittedly, it was a fun game on Sunday. So, like, I'm not like, like, I'm I'm, I'm annoyed we lost, but I'm not like irate that we lost. It I, was I, it was a great game, and I you made the point on Twitter that it is just so much more fun when the Knicks are in the playoffs and not the you know stumbling seven or eight seed that's that's the sacrificial lamb to the actually good teams. <laughs> yeah, or even like I mean, dude, realistically, like the Knicks being in the playoffs is good for the NBA, and. The, the, the second more people start to come around the idea that like we don't need to win like realistically like it'd be nice to win it all at some point but like we don't need to win it all <laughs> like like as long as we're involved it's still a more fun playoffs than it would have been otherwise yeah it's like the nhl has the toronto maple leaf problem where the the leafs are on this long streak and everybody's just kind of waiting for them to finally win it the Knicks don't necessarily have that issue of like, yes, it's been a while since, you know, the Knicks have ever won a championship, but there's not that cloud hanging over them. It's more just a, they're, they're incompetent. And so when they're not incompetent, it makes it fun. <laughs> so there's a much lower bar to clear. That is part of it. Although we are coming up, we're only two years away from the 50 year anniversary of the Knicks last title. I mean, it is one more title than Nets fans have. However, Nets fans, I don't think existed like in mass before this year to the point that like there's an actual, oh my gosh, we never won a championship drought kind of mentality in the fan base. Well, yeah. And there's not like this like long history of near misses and all this other bullshit that that, that comes with Nick's fandom. It's, so. Yeah, I, I will say the my favorite memory in New York has, has been the two times that I've seen Spike Lee in person in my old neighborhood. Um, his studio, I live right near his, his studio headquarters in Fort Greene and both times decked head to toe in Nick's gear. And I'm just, it felt like seeing a cartoon in real life. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Just bright orange. I got really excited with a Syracuse fan and instead it's Spike Lee. So, you know, different ones. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, all right. We do have some Syracuse stuff to talk about. Uh, why don't we start with the Syracuse women's lacrosse team, um, which some might argue the only successful um, team <laughs> for, for Syracuse in the last few months. Uh, the women's lacrosse team, um, after a really nice regular season where they only lost a handful of games, 
they were a three seed in the NCAA tournament. Uh, they then proceeded to uh, drub Loyola in the first round and then knock off Florida in the uh, quarterfinals, 17 to 11 um, over the weekend. And now they are in the final four for the first time in a couple of years, and they will face Northwestern um, on Friday. Northwestern to two seed. Many Syracuse fans felt like they didn't deserve to be one because they only played a Big Ten schedule and they had some questionable results there. In any case, they did make it back to the Final Four. Andy, I guess, how much of the women's lacrosse team were you taking in and uh, and, and, and how excited are you for some some championship-level uh, lacrosse here this weekend, despite the uh, the men's team's failings? <laughs> yeah, I think, like most people, it's in, in- – unnecessarily difficult to find the women's lacrosse game, which we can get into after, you know, we, we praise uh, the Syracuse team. We can chastise the NCAA uh, afterwards, but in general, I think this team has been a little, not quite a death star. Like North Carolina is the death star, but this is a very competent team that can destroy pretty much anyone when things are working. And I thought what was really interesting about this Florida game was that the teams were relatively evenly matched uh, and that was the case, you know, they went into the game tied it, they went into halftime tied. And then in the second half, Syracuse kind of just showed that gear that has put them not necessarily on the same level as North Carolina, but as the team that everyone thinks could beat North Carolina if the chips fall where they may. Like, no disrespect to Northwestern, but Northwestern is a very good team. Northwestern could not defeat North Carolina, even if they were at 100% North Carolina is at like 50%. It's just not going to happen. Syracuse is too talented of a team, too deep of a team and has that ability to just kind of flip a switch, uh, not to continue the NBA talk, but they really do kind of feel like a very good NBA team where they just have so much more talent that as long as things are close with the right motivation, with the right product, with the right strategy from Gary Gate, that they can beat anybody as long as it's close. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a pretty reasonable uh, assessment overall. Like realistically, you know, th- this SU team has dealt with a lot of challenges this year, and and it just seems like, um, you know, they they've done a lot of like next player up. It doesn't seem to matter who's out, and you know, again, it's not to diminish the the contributions of of injured players or anything, but uh, they haven't necessarily like lost anything um, in, in in terms of their abilities. I mean, talent wise, clearly, but. In, in terms of their abilities with who is, who is on the field. Um, I don't really think they've lost um, much despite the absences, you know, against Northwestern, Emma Ward, uh, Megan Tyrell, Emma Tyrell all had big days. Um, Tyrell's had six points apiece. Uh, Ward had seven. I mean, th- th- this is really like, it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to matter. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it does matter who's in the line, but it doesn't seem to matter um, who's called upon to make the big plays is that, you know, each one of these athletes is, is, is coming to the table uh, when called upon. And we've seen different names atop the, the box score um, each game here. And I think that's going to bode well um, for them. They're not necessarily just relying on one player. Yeah. And I think that this is a, a perk of, you know, when you can recruit at an incredibly high level, your depth players are still some of the best cross players in the country. And I think this is one of the bigger critiques on the men's side uh, not to derail the con- well, women's conversation with conversation of men, but like, I think that's why people get frustrated with the men's team so much is that yes, you can make excuses for them as to why they might not be playing as well. They might be missing X, Y, and Z, but they still have a roster of incredibly talented players from across the country that were basically the pick of the litter. Um, and the women have kind of shown 
you know, there's, there is a way to continue to play at a high level of excellence, even without, you know, maybe one a, you can go to two a two B and still be just as productive, even if you have to play a little bit differently. And I think that's, uh, you know, North, there's, there's a long history with Syracuse women's lacrosse and Northwestern. I remember, uh, the other, another final four appearance under Gary gate where Northwestern just absolutely suffocated the life out of a really strong orange attack. So I don't want to, say that Syracuse is all but guaranteed a place in the championship, but they're definitively more talented. They're definitively more skilled. And much like the Florida game, Northwestern is going to try to keep it close in that first half. Like I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it goes into halftime at, you know, tied at three, four or five, like the Florida game. Uh, but Syracuse will have to find that extra gear offensively. Uh, you know, they outshot Florida by 10 in the second half. Um, that, that kind of level of dominance is what's going to be needed to kind of shut out a a Northwestern team that I'm assuming is going to come out and play pretty conservatively and and try to just minimize the opportunities that Syracuse gets to, to pull to pull ahead. Yeah, I I definitely agree there. I think that this SU team seems primed. I really hope that, that some of UNC's like lack of, um, you know, kind of breakaway ability um, in these early NCAA tournament games translates to the final four. Um, and maybe prevents a rematch. I, I wouldn't mind that, um, admittedly. Yeah, but, and North Carolina's. I think Christian uh, has been saying it on the live cast on Sunday nights like every week. It's just North Carolina has no obvious weakness, and it's going to take a, an amazing game from an opponent and a less than amazing game from North Carolina uh, in order to defeat them. And, yeah, Syracuse has had two shots at them. But you get to a point where you play a team so much, there's only there's not a whole lot more you can learn, and it just comes down to to what happens, you know, that day. I'd rather not risk that for a third time and and try to face someone new who might be a little bit less prepared against Syracuse. Well, unfortunately for us, um, that's not going to happen, no matter who wins that game, <laughs> <laughs> because realistically, um, obviously Northwestern hasn't seen us this year. Um, they haven't seen anyone outside the Big Ten, but on the other side of the bracket, it's North Carolina. And Boston College, a team we have faced numerous times this year. Uh, <laughs> we, we've won most of them, but uh, realistically, you know, th- th- this is not a team unfamiliar with us. SU's faced Boston College uh, three times in the last month, um, month, well, month, month and a half, um, a 13 to 14 loss to BC um, at home on April 22nd. Two days later, a 16 to 7 win, and then a 19 to 7 win um, just a week later against the Eagles on an ACC tournament. So hopefully if we end, if, if BC, I mean, realistically BC lose winning against UNC would be ideal um, just because they are the lesser of the two. But at the same time, I think facing a team four times in like a month or so, uh, I don't love that either. (laughs) Neither is optimal. And it is just another, uh, this is really, it, it seems like we're reaching the end of the tunnel. Maryland already said that there's going to be full capacity for their games in the fall. I'm assuming that we're going to start to see more and more teams um, start to announce, you know, full capacity for, for collegiate athletic events next fall and things are going to feel more normal. Uh, it really does feel like this is that last little grasp of, oh, like, by the way, you guys are playing the season in a pandemic weirdness that has, you know, everybody's come to terms with in their sport in some way, shape or form. And naturally, of course, women's lacrosse is going to, if they can get past Northwestern is going to be in a situation where, Oh yeah, we've played this team so many times already. Something weird is going to happen. Yeah. I, I completely agree there. Um, so I guess Andy quick 
uh, we don't have to go into in depth, but do you think the SU women's team um, is going to win the national title um, over this coming Memorial Day weekend? I want, my heart says absolutely, but my head just <laughs> says that I, I really do think that this is North Carolina's title to lose. Even though they have not played their best lacrosse, they've still beaten everybody on their way to the final four. Um, they're familiar with Boston college enough that I think they'll get past them. And then the rematch with Syracuse, uh, you know, it'll be a great game. I just, I think to your point earlier where you really miss, uh, players who went down with injury, uh, that you expected to be high end contributors, you miss them in the national title game. You miss them in the big championship games where that extra level of elite talent is the difference between, you know, a, a scoring opportunity here, a defensive stop there that that really swings those types of games. Yeah, I mean, realistically, um, you know, between Graham and Horshuk, like it's just it, it, it's a lot of firepower. You really need that against UNC. I, I agree with you. I think I think SU loses a close one in the national title game, but um, it's going to be super annoying because uh, <laughs> I feel like. Every good Olympic, and again, this is North Carolina's dominance in ACC uh, non-revenue sports, is that all of our teams since the ACC move end up going against North Carolina in a Final Four or in a conference tournament. And North Carolina always comes out on top because their teams are just really good. Yeah, it's quite unfortunate um, for us because I think we have come on and, you know, this is a topic for a different day, but one everybody kind of has heard before that, you know, we've done a really good job uh, bringing up non-revenue sports. I remember most of them were not really much of a factor when I was at SU, and that's changed a ton um, over the last decade, and especially since we're in the ACC. Um, but a, a bummer that there's always, you know, it seems like somebody like um, UNC in particular uh, waiting for us at the end. But alas, we, uh, we, we hopefully live to fight another day. Before we get to halftime, Andy did want to just mention one thing. Uh, Syracuse men's basketball announced that they'll be hosting Lehigh on December 18th. Uh, I know I mentioned in the article on Monday, if, if we do face Colgate and Cornell, if the rest of the schedule for non-conference days is planned, uh, we've already got 30 opponents accounted for, um, on this schedule. Uh, this is a pretty tough slate. So I, I applaud Lafayette and Lehigh being added, um, over the last week. But, uh, did, did you have any games, I guess, I guess if you're looking at the non-conference schedule, um, are, are, are there a handful of games that really uh, that really get you either concerned or, or excited? Obviously, there's a lot of big name opponents on here. Yeah, I think I, everyone's drawn to the, the traditional opponents like uh, Georgetown's on there. Uh, there's the Villanova game in New York City, which. Listen, I'm excited for I'm going to be at. I'm fully expecting Syracuse to lose because their record in New York City over the last few years has just been absolutely abysmal. Um, but it's really, I think you guys covered this really well in the last uh, the last time the big scheduling kind of came up, is that there's just a lot of tricky non-conference games. Like, I'm really excited that they're going to be playing in Atlantis, but there's a really good shot Syracuse goes 0 for 3 down there. Um, Colgate is obviously coming off of not a Cinderella story in terms of their rise to national prominence and how good they were. And that kind of team obviously won't have the same level of weapons, but it's not like Syracuse is this proven entity that will be able to handle all comers from the get-go. Like this, this is a team where the orange are going to be replacing key contributors with a lot of question marks and unproven players at a ACC level. 
And it's going to take a while before they all gel together. And normally in a non-pandemic season, you the off seat, the non-conference slate is Jim Beheim's opportunity to kind of give them longer leashes or in the case of some players, uh, really short leashes, yell at them a lot and then give them an opportunity to kind of redeem themselves. Um, this schedule makes it seem like there's not going to be that level of leeway for mistakes. And that feels really concerning for a team that feels like it needs room to make mistakes. Yeah, no, I completely agree there. I think that this is a group that while they return some talent, they have a lot of transfers. There's obviously the usual concerns around the zone defense um, and, and plugging guys in there. Um, you know, I, I would assume that Jimmy Beheim is at least a little uh, familiar with the zone, um, <laughs> but but maybe not so much for you know a guy like Cole Swider, uh, the Villanova transfer. I think realistically, like you look at this battle for Atlantis um, field, which is arguably the best that that uh, event has ever had, and uh, this could be tough. And, and and even like a even an SU team that's just as good as last year's and the TBD there um, could lose you know four non conference games. Um, pretty easily if you look at the schedule. So I, I think that, you know, the other problem here is that, you know, Jim said straight up, like it doesn't seem like we're adding anybody else. So this is really going to be like a, a nine man team from the start um, that maybe gets knocked down to, you know, seven or eight, um, just depending on who's playing well. I, this is, this puts a lot of pressure on Benny Williams as a freshman, this puts a yeah. lot of pressure um, on Buddy Beheim um, as, as an outside shooter. It, it, it really asked Joe Girard to, to improve upon and not just erase last year's um, kind of struggles, but improve upon, um, you know, when he was shooting well um, as a freshman two years ago, like I personally think it's a little too much pressure on, on, on too few guys. And I don't think this team's super athletic and I don't think they're going to be super defensively inclined. Uh, but if they can shoot the lights <laughs> out from three, then this could be an entertaining group of nothing else. Yeah, I think you brought up a really good point in mentioning the offensive question marks that are around the team. I certainly think that asking Joe Girard from going from a freshman who played all the time to a sophomore who really struggled once teams knew knew his game and knew his playbook, who was able to come in, get some coaching, and then or come out, get some coaching, and then come back in, is now basically just thrown to the wolves once again. Um, that's very problematic when the team doesn't really – we don't know what Benny Williams is yet. Uh, there, there's really high ceiling, but there's nobody on this team that can create their own shot. Like Buddy has shown that he needs to be off ball uh, and utilize his size and screen set by everybody else in order to get space. Uh, when he does have the ball, the only way that he's really proven to uh, create his own shot is by utilizing size mis- advantages, which is not going to happen when you're playing a non-conference schedule this good with this many teams that also recruit uh, guys of that caliber and that size. So I I have lots of concerns over the offense, but even more so last year we saw the zone really never come together. Even in the postseason, teams were not – struggling against the zone because the zone was playing well. They were struggling against the zone because they couldn't shoot and they refused to really do anything else but try to shoot their way out of the zone, which I think we all just kind of laughed and it's like, I don't know why teams suddenly get dumb when they see a zone in the NCAA tournament. But we heard it all year. Jim Beheim did not like the way the zone played. We wanted to put more blame on the guards than he did. And so great, you're throwing out Quincy Garrier uh, at from the four 
and you're replacing him with a smaller number four in Jimmy Beheim Jr. And then you're going to ask a freshman, Benny Williams, to pick up a lot of slack when we've seen freshmen struggle in the zone. So I just don't see there being a lot of upside for this team. And the floor is super low. And that is not a good recipe for a team with a tough non-conference and an ACC conference schedule to go through. Yeah, I agree. And obviously there's plenty of time left this offseason to talk about it. But um, when you're facing Duke twice, Florida State twice, um, in general, this is just a tough um, ACC slate all the time. Even even when, like, it seems like there's kind of been this, like, bump in the road for the conference overall. Um, I'm definitely, like, unfortunately low on this group. But it doesn't seem like national media is. I don't know if that's just trolling or or, or at least trying to pick up some page views. but but I'm I'm hopeful I'm wrong, um, and, and and I usually say that um, in recent years about um, about Syracuse men's basketball and what's going on. But yeah, I, I I'm with you in that I hope that I'm wrong here. And really, like you said, you've laid out the the way that this team is successful is by shooting like crazy and just being a ridiculously dumb team, which is totally in the realm of possibility for a modern Syracuse Orange basketball team. Agreed. Agreed. Well, I think that's halftime, Andy. So uh, around here, we talk about beer. Yeah. So uh, what have you been drinking? So it's been really nice that it got hot as heck here in New York the last few weeks. So there was lots of outdoor drinking and lots of bars uh, going into their summer beer menus, which is significantly better than their winter beer menus around here. Um, so I'm currently drinking a Brooklyn summer, which is just my default bodega beer. Um, but when I went out, I was able to grab a threes guilt by association, 21st amendment, tasty IPA. Um, I, I don't like that one as much as I like their 24, uh, their other IPA, the brew for you die hard. That's one of my favorites. Um, tasty is like a solid Northeast attempt, but they should really just stick to their California IPAs. Um, I had something called Temporary Sanity, which was an IPA from Abandoned uh, Building Brewery, which was fine. And then I had some Grim, which really made me happy because their their beer is just fantastic. I got some Rhythm Force, uh, Classic Rewind, both IPAs, both, you know, 7 8% APVs, just fantastic beers by them that I will recommend to everybody because Grim's an awesome brewery. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Um, on this end, we don't have summer or winter beer menus. We just have beer menus. <laughs> <laughs> but I had, uh, for Modern Times, uh, Real Chill was a Pilsner from them. Uh, Spog City uh, down in Torrance, which I mention all the time, had their 10th anniversary um, party. Well, party in quotes, just kind of outdoor get-together. And everybody was distanced, all that. Um, but obviously, things are opening up. Um, had their 10th anniversary IPA. That uh, was a West Coast. Their Watchstrike IPA, also a West Coast style IPA, had their Outer Limit uh, Wild Ale, and I also had their. Uh, and I've had this one before. I think I mentioned it a couple weeks ago. Uh, their uh, Mocha Infinite Wishes um, Imperial Coffee Stout. Um, that was super good. Um, I'll probably have like some more different stuff next week uh, when I'm on with Dan. But yeah, I I, I kind of ended up sticking to to Smog City since. There was just so much going on from a beer perspective on the uh, anniversary uh, front. Yeah, there is going to be, I'm hopeful uh, that this summer I'm able to get up to Queens and try out some of those beers that are doing anniversary um, anniversaries and lots of reopening celebrations happening around here uh, for New York in the summer. And I'm, I'm sure that you're in the same boat. Like it's, it's just good to be able to go back to breweries in a safe way because those outings, you, you never realize just, 
how fun and how needed they were for just little breaks of sanity. Oh, totally. So I guess for the rest of the time, Andy, uh, because yeah. there's only a handful of things going on, um, Syracuse uh, kind of realm, figured we'd talk a little bit about a, uh, a topic both of us enjoy, some commenters also enjoy. Um, that is Marvel and what's going on there. The uh, Eternals trailer dropped on Monday, and I think both of us were, um, I'll say, unimpressed with the uh, with the trailer, at least, uh, for, for, from from what we saw. And I watched it twice to make sure I wasn't imagining things in the first one. And yes, yeah, still unimpressed through two watches, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, the, the point that I made uh, to anybody who would listen, so very few people, uh, is, is that what we have seen in the post-Phase uh, 2, so like Marvel Phase 3, Endgame, Infinity War, all these trailers, is that they do a really good job uh, hyping up the movie by two things. One, continuing the Marvel story, whatever that continuation may be, for the hardcore fans. And then for the casual fans, it is to sum up the the conflict or sum up the heart of the story in the trailer. So like in, just this year with the Marvel properties that have come out, WandaVision's trailer was really heavy on the Wanda and Vision relationship because that was the, the core of the story. Falcon and Winter Soldier was the legacy of the S.H.I.E.L.D. That, had, that was the branding, that was the marketing campaign all the way through and through. Loki, they laid it out in the trailer. Loki's broke the timeline. It's now Loki's job to fix it. Um, but all of those characters had existed in the MCU prior to this year. Um, this year, we're getting the Eternals, which is all new characters from an MCU perspective, very deep cut Marvel Comics perspective. But we're also getting Shang-Chi, which is coming out pre-Eternals. It's coming out in September. And they there's only one teaser trailer for Shang-Chi as well. But that trailer is very clear in telling you, here's a character who is being asked to inherit a family legacy, and he does not want to do so. That is the conflict. We're going to show you that conflict in little snippets. And in 90 seconds, I feel like I have a really good grasp on where that movie is going to go from a character building perspective. And I'm already really excited because it's a narrative that I find interesting. The Eternals trailer really was just trying to push you on, hey, here are all the actors that you probably know from one of the things that you like outside of Marvel. And the core point of the story that they were trying to hit was that you haven't heard of these people because they chose not to be involved and now they're getting involved, which is not really all that compelling. And in the few movies that they've tried to hit on that, a la Captain Marvel, it hasn't gone very well. Because you either have to make the character amnesiac or you have to make them incredibly indifferent and aloof. And I don't feel like a movie that is filled with crazy, aloof, high-end actors playing high, highly powerful, aloof characters in the shared universe that literally just had half the population wiped out. Uh, like I, I'm having a really hard time connecting the dots here. Yeah, and, and and ultimately, and again, this is stuff that we were talking about in our Slack. Like, to me, I, I I feel that it's kind of lazy to just add in that one like conversation point at, at, in the last five seconds of the trailer about um, Iron Man and Steve Rogers, and just say, you know, now they're gone. Like, who takes over the Avengers? Like, okay, so now you just did the whole like, let's men- make sure we mention Iron Man in every single post Endgame property. <laughs> uh rule but like let's also make this yet another 
movie or show about what happens after Endgame. And, and I do think at some point they need to be able to turn the page. And I think maybe the ties are heavier than they seem, at least right now, but they don't, they certainly don't look like they're going to be tied too heavily to what's happened in MCU so far. And now they're going to be like defining it going forward. I just, I don't know how many people are going to buy in without, I mean, and, and maybe Marvel doesn't care about the casuals anymore. And that's perfectly fine, I guess. And, and, and completely reasonable at this point, but like, what would I wanted to see? And I think others wanted to see too, is like, what would have gotten me excited is like a glimpse of the ebony blade or a glimpse of, um, you know, like something black Knight related, uh, like, <laughs> like, 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 and like we, we saw, you know, Kit Harrington like for a second or two, but anything that like teased out, Oh no, this is going to be something you like are sort of familiar with, which is like a, a like B tier Avenger is in this movie, but like, because nobody knows that if nobody can connect those dots, except for people like you and me and others who like, are like, Oh, I know who he's playing and who he's eventually going to be in some, you know, soon to be Avengers title. Right. And, and here's the thing about Eternals that is such a weird, a weird place for this movie is that it it's directed by Chloe Zhao and full disclosure, like this is a movie where three years ago when I was working at Tops, I saw a sizzle reel for this out in Disney when I, we were out in Disney as a company. And like they had already formulated the plot. They had already like worked on the script. They were just working on like pre-production stuff. And Marvel is very famous for adapting things on the fly. But the movie that they were showing us in the sizzle reel that they were showing to other partners was here's this really talented up direct upcoming director in Zhao who makes different types of movies and she's going to try to make this a a horror movie to which I was incredibly interested because that's a realm that Marvel really hasn't gone in and if you are somewhat familiar with the Eternals in the comics which not very many people are like they're a very weird group that is open for lots of different types of interpretation and Neil Gaiman famously interpreted them in a much more dark way that the movie seems to be leaning into the the concept of these people not caring about humanity or willing fully willfully choosing to remove themselves from humanity and then trying to reemerge in, in into that space um but if the trailer doesn't show any notes of that if anything the trailer shows like a very like carefree family story so I, I honestly don't know what to expect anymore, which is not a bad thing. But when you don't know what to expect in any way, shape, or form, the trailer really has to sell you. And that trailer was was just boring. At least in the Shang-Chi trailer, trailer, we saw action. In the Loki trailer, we saw Tom Hiddleston being charming as hell with Owen Wilson. Like There was nothing about that movie in the angelina jolie staring off screen at something in a pensive <laughs> manner that made me go like oh man i really got to see this movie <laughs> yeah and weirdly too like it's I, I don't know if you've been reading the um new eternals um comic but it reminds me a lot of like the weird tone of those like i'm only like a couple in because i'm reading on marvel unlimited but like two in i'm like i know what's going on but also like this is not all that interesting and, and, and I worry it's going to be too much inside baseball on screen when some of the shots from this look a lot like some of the shots from the comic already. 
And this is, and I think this is the issue that Marvel is going to kind of run into. And you've talked about this a lot is, you know, they turned a lot of B tier characters into A tier back when this whole thing was, was starting up and they didn't have X-Men. They didn't have fantastic four. They didn't have Spider-Man. So they had to make Captain America and Iron Man work. Um, the, the issue is that you went through a lot of those B tier characters and they're the choice of characters that they're choosing to develop for movies versus TV shows is really interesting to me because Miss Marvel is a character. I'm happy she's going to get more screen time in a TV show than a movie, but Kamala Khan is a character to me that is infinitely more interesting than the Eternals when it comes to a movie setting. Well, she is too, to just in general, like to the the, the comic buying public. Like like, like, realistically, like Kamala is a character that like resonates with people who read. And it's like, uh, so like the characters who are, who were not necessarily relegated to TV, but who are going to be on TV and not movies initially are Kamala Khan and Miss Marvel, She-Hulk, Moon Knight. Uh, we know about Loki. We saw Falcon, Winter Soldier, Wanda, and Vision, whatever. My, my point is, is that all those characters are historically much higher up in the pecking order than Shang-Chi, than the Eternals, than a lot of these, uh, you know, new projects that aren't a, a sequel. So I, I think it's interesting. The decisions are definitely not the ones I would have made. But that said, these are really the only, these are the last two like original character movies that are coming out for a while, because after this, it's just, it's sequel central. Like you've got Spider-Man, you've got Strange. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember that, that the thing Lord that Marvel Panther, put out for Superhero Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> like we, it's, it's going back to, it's giving Marvel and Feige some time to develop some new characters chief among them like we didn't see it in the um superhero day trailer but we know Mahershala Ali is going to play a live action blade at some point in time that movie sounds infinitely more interesting than anything else that's been released so far yeah I I would definitely agree there I'm still very curious to see how blade and and Deadpool separately like figure into what's happening here um I don't want to dive into that rabbit hole just yet um today but maybe at some point over the summer uh, i did want to hit on something you were saying on on slack the other day about how for you like shang chi it seems like the most exciting phase four um title of of everything that's been you know announced so far and and it's not that i doubt its ability to succeed but but i'm curious to hear if you have anything to add to defend that um versus something like thor when thor is obviously like a character everyone loves at this point or like a Dr. Strange that, that, that it seems like that movie is going to be deciding a lot or, or Spider-Man, you know, a personal favorite of yours as a character. Um, like, do you think that Shang-Chi is going to be able to like rise above those movies even? Yeah. And I think I, I do. And the reason I think that is uh, like twofold. The first is it is definitively a movie where anybody is going to be able to jump in. And we saw that with Black Panther to an extent. Um, Black Panther obviously had the cultural attachment um, to being the first, like truly celebrating black culture in a lot of different ways in a movie uh, produced at that level. So Marvel is definitively hoping that Shang-Chi does the same thing for the, the Asian market, both in the United States and abroad. And I think it will. So it's definitely going to get inflated monetarily because of that. But I also think 
that to a casual, to somebody who is just looking for a, a movie to watch. It is a high-paced action movie that stars a lot of recognizable faces in Aquafina and Simu Liu that can very easily draw somebody in. And I think, based off of what we've seen in the trailer, again, to reiterate on an earlier point, it's going to be a story that a lot of people relate to. And it might not be the most, you know, it might not be an Oscar-worthy script, but it's going to be incredibly relatable. And I think a lot of people are going to enjoy the experience beyond the amazing fight choreography that we've seen in the trailer. The second aspect of it is in the larger Marvel universe, we're seeing lots of new characters that could potentially step up into, oh, will this person be an Avenger? Will this person be an Avenger? And Shang-Chi's history in Marvel with the Avengers has always been more of somebody who like kind of floats in, floats out. So there's not this history that the movie has to adhere to of, okay, how do we set this up so that he eventually becomes, you know, the the hand-to-hand combatant of the Avengers. I I think that there's a really big opportunity here for Shang-Chi to just kind of live in his own space. And Mm -hmm. maybe they take this opportunity to build up, say, an Agents of Atlas or to build up a different Marvel team separate to to what exists. But ultimately, I think what's going to happen is that because they're not going to be bogged down by trying to create Easter eggs and trying to create threads to what's been established, this movie will get to live on its own and it will get to live on its own because the story it's trying to tell is pretty straightforward and they've got an incredible cast and direction uh, around it. And again, I I think part of this is also admittedly, uh, I just started watching Kim's convenience and Simu Liu is, is a fantastic supporting actor in that show. And I, he's going to get to play a very similar role, which is a son who has a really difficult relationship with his father. And that's a story that I think will hit home for enough people to elevate it beyond just your typical Marvel fandom. Yeah, I buy that. And, and ultimately, I think it's a genre that's not, it's been explored plenty over the years, but I don't think much recently. Yeah. And, and I think that helps that it's like, oh, like, like no, it's not going to be a pure play like, uh, you know, Bruce Lee type Kung Fu movie. But this is something that is going to be like, oh, hey, remember these? Like, we're doing this, but also for Marvel. And, and I do agree with you that, and I think this is the case for most characters, really should be, I guess. Um, like in the comics, like, you know, like as far as like the core Avengers books, like there's the West Coast Avengers and all the other shit. But like, realistically, like the Avengers, Avengers, like there's not a whole lot of the like standby characters left of that core team. So realistically, like, do you have a decentralized Avengers that makes a lot more sense um, going forward? And I, I don't think Marvel or Disney can afford to leave that name behind um, because of the amount of money it can make. But, right. but at the same time, I do think that the concept of what are the Avengers becomes a decentralized group. Um, and, and that you're able to let these characters more breathe on their own. And, and that could be a good thing really long-term for storytelling because it allows for more movies. It allows for more characters. And then you have like the team-up film and that way you can have, you know, the Fantastic Four fighting alongside Thor to fight some threat. And, and it's not, it, it's an Avengers movie, but they're not the Avengers. And, and I think that's really the differentiation that you're probably going to see over the course of the next like two to three years. Um, as we keep establishing all these different worlds and different, you know, sub teams. I mean, even like Captain Marvel two is like 
you know, the Marvel's uh, moniker. Terrible name. Terrible ter- name. Yeah, awful name. We've, you and I have talked about this. Terrible <laughs> name. I think, it's, I think it's awful. But at the same time, it does allow for a soft reboot of a character that they just didn't, they swung and missed on so hard in the first two iterations. And I do think that that wasn't even Brie Larson's fault either. I think it's just a product of uh, the constraints of the scheduling. I think the writing for her wasn't great. Um, the out of order kind of filming didn't really work for her either, but realistically, like Carol Danvers has to be like one of the like three or so most important characters for you going forward. And, and if you can't nail it on this next one, like you're kind of, I'm not gonna say you're screwed, but the plans you should be having are, are screwed. Well, and I think you brought up a really good point is like this decentralized nature, uh, nature of the Avengers does put a little bit more emphasis on the individual storytelling around specific individual characters and Captain Marvel, Brie Larson, like the, the two of them did get screwed in the sense that she was basically, uh, it was it was like a backdoor pilot basically right. um and i think marvel learned that that's not the best way to introduce characters it's better to have them you know maybe uh not to dive into falcon winter soldier uh spoilers for captain america 4 uh, or speculation for captain america 4 but like we saw that there you know isaiah bradley played a big part in that series and we know that in the comics isaiah bradley's grandson ends up becoming a key member of the young avengers I think it's a good idea that Marvel did not dive into that origin story in Falcon and Winter Soldier. They're allowing it to be, hey, if someone else has an idea for that character, we've we've created this character in universe. You can pick up and build the origin story yourself, or we can just leave it be and fans will speculate and make YouTube videos about this from now until the, till the end of time. Uh, I think that we're seeing with a lot of the new Marvel uh, offerings on Disney plus with the movies that are starring new characters that they're getting a more fleshed out and true to uh, character centralizing origin story. And to bring this whole conversation home, that's why I think Shang-Chi could be very good because it'll be the only movie that is truly devoted to telling an origin story about a character. Uh, everything else is sequels all the TV shows are about characters that we've already lived with. And the only other movie that's showing new characters is the Eternals, which looks boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think those are all great points. And, and, and I will say like, yeah, even the, even the, the new characters, so to speak in, in some of these shows, I mean, Kate Bishop, we don't know, but we're getting intro to through somebody we already know in Clint Barton. Mm-hmm. Um, she Hulk, I'm sure we're going to be introduced in part, um, you know, via Bruce. Uh, Kamala, I'm sure there's going to be some sort of tie, um, you know, to Carol um, within that. I, I think, and this is a conversation for another day. I am curious if they make her a mutant just to get rid of the like problems. Like, if if you create the Inhumans plot line there, what? Like, I don't think you can. I think you write yourself into a corner that you can't get out of easily. I'm I'm very intrigued because. I, I think what we've seen, uh, you and I both, you know, you, you live out in California, so you understand the craziness that is San Diego Comic-Con and the phenomenon that is Marvel at these conventions, where we, we've seen that what they announce is so far in advance to what they're actually working on. 
and the, and Kevin Feige has earned the reputation and the cachet in the industry to basically say, I'm going to make this movie 10 years from now without necessarily having anything done for it. And I think uh, I'm using my therapy words to quote the great Stephen Godfrey here. I think, and I feel that we are now far enough beyond the Fox acquisition and we are now into a space where he has said it enough times as like a, a joke and we've seen a Fantastic Four logo and we know a Fantastic Four movie is coming to believe that X-Men something is going to start trickling through in a lot of these new projects that are filming right now. And there's a lot of projects filming right now, so it might just be one thing. But we saw Madripoor in Falcon and Winter Soldier. There's r- tons of rumors about a, a Dazzler showing up in Ant-Man Quantumania. There's, you know, Kamala could be a mutant instead of an inhuman. There's lots of different opportunities here, and it feels unlike Marvel to not have at least one of those be the beginning of the mutant introduction. Totally. And realistically, like when you look at like X-Men has become has regained its popularity as as like the best collection of books within Marvel. I mean, there's exceptions there, but I think realistically, Mm -hmm. anyone who's been reading lately um, you know, the, the kind of, you know, Hickman led, uh, Dawn of X, House of X, um, run up to now, uh, it's, it's, it's compelling and it's, it's driving sales. It's keeping people interested. And I think, uh, Marvel understands how to cap, especially now that Feige runs the whole, you know, Marvel edifice. Um, I, I think that they understand how to capitalize on that and keep people interested. And, and it's going to be, to me, it's going to be interesting to see how, like, and we've talked about this like many times about, would they potentially try to like start at the now of, of X-Men and, and, and what if you started at, at the Krakoa status quo instead of like, obviously the decades of history. And, and if you did start at the Krakoa status quo, would that remove the relevance and, and, and impact of the X-Men because it's not talking about the, the, the decades of persecution and, and, and decades of discrimination. I think there's two different ways to look at it. Um, The first way is that at the heart of the new story, the reason that they've decided to create their own nation state, the reason that they've decided to, you know, uh, take these choices of action is because of those years of persecution. So you can't really tell the new story without all those years of history getting to the point where when Magneto you know, says something to the extent of, you know, we, we've been doing it this way for so long. This this is the only logical path left. Um, that hits home in a whole new level because you've been with them for this long. Now, that said, um, I want to credit my friend Mike, who, who kind of sent this over to me. Uh, when Marvel signed Hickman, Feige was not yet like president of all things Marvel, but that announcement came pretty shortly afterward. And Hickman pre-signing with Marvel had been very open about his disdain for the comic book industry and his desire to move into a television movie sphere. And it there's nothing confirming it, but there's a lot to be said that arguably one of the best runs of Fantastic Four was when Hickman wrote Fantastic Four and one of the and the current run of X-Men is written by Hickman and he's overseeing the whole thing. It really feels like a wasted opportunity when Kevin Feige can play in both sandboxes and you've got the guy who
who has written the best versions of both of these characters and these families that people want to see so much just sitting around in your comic book office when he has said, I really want to do TV and I really want to do movie stuff. Like, I'm not necessarily saying that means we're going to get Krakoa, but it does seem foolish to think that Hickman won't be involved in these projects in some way, shape, or form. That's reasonable. Well, I think that's a good note to close on, Andy, uh, mostly because my children are home. But <laughs> uh, thanks for filling in for Dan this week. Really appreciate it. Some fun Syracuse talk, some fun Marvel talk. We'll be sure to uh, do it again sometime this summer. Yeah, uh, and hopefully uh, the next time that we do talk, we are talking about National Championship Oranges, and I will continue to, in my heart, hope that that is the case. (laughs) Agreed, agreed. Uh, So everyone, that was Andy. I'm John. Thank you for listening to Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, Megaphone, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, and go Orange. Go Orange.